gripping the stony lip of the fall with his fingers, he let himself gently down. Until when his arms were almost at full stretch, he found toes. What? Oh, God! No! Oh, God! <laughs> Hello, my good folks. Thank you very much for joining me. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And I'm about to leave you. <laughs> I, uh, I just realized... Well, there's some stuff that happens in the next couple of chapters here. And I have just realized that I may need my own form of uh, Andy Circus voice potion. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so I'm going to go get some water boiling really quick and I'll be right back. Um, because I think this may turn out to be kind of important tonight. <laughs> I'll be back. Just a moment. It should take me, what, 30 seconds? Just a sec. Precisely, JT. I'm a little nervous. In my head, I should leave out the lemon, because that seems too acidic. All right. I have got my tea. I have got my mug. So I've got some honeybush tea. Uh, for those of you who do not know, honeybush tea is technically not tea. It is a tisan. I believe it is tisan. Um, but, but I never, I, I, I used to think about it a little bit. I never would have done it like out loud, but I used to kind of in my mind, uh, you know, kind of, uh, chuckle when people would mispronounce, uh, interesting words. But then I realized like, well, A, so do I, but I read like, well, yeah, they, they do that because it means they learned it from reading at which point I was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> then there's absolutely no sense in me in me uh, putting a goof out on somebody like that. Somebody who, who learns their words from reading, they, they simply cannot be, cannot be faulted for that. Um, but uh, yeah, I have also only seen plenty of words in writing, uh, but Tizan, I, I had to look that one up because it's just a, it's a really annoying looking French word. Um, now that one's different because that one I just straight up, <laughs> that one I just goofed up, Orly Rose. I just had the, the letters out of order in my head and that one, that one, frankly, is on me. Uh, Alamora, I think Alamora, I think, is where where I had it for quite a while. Um, but yeah, interesting little fact. Uh, your tisans are like you know mo basically all of your herbal tea, etc. But all tea, green tea, black tea, uh, uh, oolong, pu'er, all of that are just different preparations of the same plant. And uh, basically two strains of the same plant um, with slightly different growing seasons, slightly different uh, climates in which they like to grow, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yep. Oh, there goes my water. But I've also got my tea press. So I'm ready for this. <laughs> All right, everybody. How cozy do I look right now? I'm in my, in my bathrobe. Got my kettle on. Oh, there's like a... Is my... My kettle's all leaking. Well, that's just whack. Come on, goof troop. Who made this thing? Alright, let me go put this back. Okay, everyone. I'm in my bathrobe. It's raining outside. That all makes me feel pretty darn good. I like that. Um, I'm gonna need a spoon and some honey before I actually get started here, but we've got a little bit of time. So let's 
Let's settle in. Let's say hi. My good folks, hello, hello. It's grand to be here. Uh, what has everybody been doing this week? Orly Rose says, I have to take a picture of my Nightmare Before Christmas Merino wool poncho. It's like wearing a hug mixed with a blanket. Come on, Orly Rose. I'm going to go ahead and count ponchos and cloaks to all be part of our sort of fashion movement that we're trying to bring forward, right? Now, being as we are a sort of like roughly motorcycle, sidecar, motorcycle themed group, I think long, loose, flowing clothing would be an almost insane idea. Uh, but since we don't actually ride motorcycles, I'm just going to go ahead and say that this particular, like, Storytime MC, we've, we're going to do the cloak slash poncho thing. I know it's not quite the same thing, but I'm going to go ahead and say, look, as part of this mission, as part of this this movement that we're trying to uh, kind of put back together, right, that we're trying to reintroduce into the fashion spheres because, I mean, it's cheap as heck, and they look cool, and they're super practical. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say ponchos and cloaks will be allies in our movement here. So, so there's that. So if you've got a sweet poncho, because it sounds pretty darn sweet, Orly Rose. Um, uh, when you say, I mean, merino wool poncho, that's already like going to be absolutely delightful. I don't have a merino wool one. I've got a couple of really lightweight ones that I really like, but I would love to get a nice like winter poncho. Mm, that'd be delightful. Um, I see Luis. I do hope that uh, that process goes well. Um, I think uh, downsizing by necessity is always tough, uh, but I will say when I, when I have the gumption to downsize, um, I don't often find myself regretting anything that I left behind. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of confidence. I hope, fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, Grim says, JT, I just bought a Batman toaster because I'm an adult with adult money. <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna grab some honey. I'm gonna grab a spoon. I'll be back, we're gonna talk review for 60 seconds, and then we're gonna read. We're coming up on it, don't worry. Don't worry, we're close. Okay, all right, my good folks. Are you ready? Let's talk turkey, and by turkey, of course, I mean rings. I've always said that. Lord of the Rings. Folks, we are now embarking into part two of book two. The Two Towers. The Two Towers has thus far been the story of Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas. And then alongside that, uh, we've also got Merry and Pippin. Now, as we follow these folk across the lands, we find that we have not checked back in with Sam and Frodo almost at all. It has been a, a sort of, well, a disturbingly long time uh, to, <laughs> to hearken back to my original feelings about leaving them for so long in this story. Um, as we as we wait, as we wait for word of them, we have seen how um, uh, uh, Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli have caught back up to our friends, Merry and Pippin. Uh, so they are safe, good, wonderful. And over the course of this time, uh, let's see, uh, Gandalf is back, Gandalf the White, uh, now being sent back to Middle-earth to finish up some of his unfinished business. Uh, we have got... Um, 
Sam and Pippin had an adventure in Fangorn Forest, wherein they went ahead and uh, kind of... uh, uh, not summoned necessarily, but sort of spurred the uh, the Ent to action, to investigate what's going on at their borders, and to join in the fight. Um, and the the Ents have done so. They have laid waste to uh, this territory called Isengard uh, that was presided over by the traitor Saruman. Um, Saruman, of course... Uh, now is hanging out up in his tower, um, and uh, frankly, this area is safe. But the battle being over certainly does not mean that the war is won. And now, as we as we join with the the riders of Rohan and head off toward uh, toward Gondor, now things just get a bit darker. We've had one successful battle. Two, even. Uh, Helm's Deep and uh, here at Isengard. Um, but it is many battles to make a victory. And with that, everybody, I think we are ready to proceed on into our story. Now, I've got this stuff here. All right, I made some tea. I made some, some honeybush tea. And I've got a lot of honey in it. My question to myself is... Is this going to gum up all my other voices? Because, well, I'll just say as we move on into part two, chapter one is titled The Taming of Smeagol, which means that we've got one voice that, at least compared to all the other chapters, is going to feature quite heavily. I won't uh, I won't go too far into just how heavily it features, but look, y'all may just have to forgive me today, they had to do a whole thing and there's a very professional voice actor who uh, <laughs> kind of launched a an enormous career off of this voice, so it's not going to be easy bear with me bear with me I'm excited uh, yes, Proteus Spade says, now I suspect you're going to go Andy Circus with this I don't think there's a way that I couldn't frankly, this is like this is one of those voices where it's so iconic, you kind of have to, you have to give it a shot, right? You kind of got to do it. So I'm going to got to do it. Just bear with me, folks. The Two Towers, Part 2, Chapter 1, The Taming of Smeagol. Oh, Master, we're in a fix, and no mistake, said Sam Gamgee. He stood despondently with hunched shoulders beside Frodo and peered out with puckered eyes into the gloom. It was the third evening since they had fled from the company, as far as they could tell. They had almost lost count of the hours during which they had climbed and labored among the barren slopes and stones of the Emin Muil, 
sometimes retracing their steps because they could find no way forward, sometimes discovering they had wandered in a circle back to where they had been hours before. Yet, on the whole, they had worked steadily eastward, keeping as near as they could to find a way to the outer edge of this strange, twisted knot of hills. But always they found its outward faces sheer, high, and impassable. Frowning over the plain below, beyond the tumbled skirts lay livid, festering marshes where nothing moved, and not even a bird was to be seen. The hobbit stood now on the brink of a tall cliff, bare and bleak, its feet wrapped in mist, and behind them rose the broken highlands, crowned with drifting cloud. A chill wind blew from the east. Night was gathering over the shapeless lands before them. The sickly green of them was fading to a sullen brown. Far away to the right, the Anduin, that gleamed fitfully in sunbreaks during the day, was now hidden in shadow. But their eyes did not look beyond the river, back to Gondor, to their friends, to the lands of men. South and east they stared to where, at the edge of the oncoming night, a dark line hung like distant mountains of motionless smoke. Every now and again a tiny red gleam, far away, flickered upward to the rim of the earth and sky. What a fix, said Sam. That's the one place in all the lands we've ever covered that I don't want to see any closer, and that's the one place we're trying to get to. And that's just where we can't get no how come the wrong way altogether, seemingly. We can't get down, and if we did get down, all we'd find is a green land with a nasty bog, I'll warrant. <sighs> can you smell it? He sniffed at the wind. Yes, I can smell it, said Frodo, but he did not move, and his eyes remained fixed, staring out toward the dark line of the flickering flame. Mordo, he muttered under his breath, if I must go there, I wish I could... Get there quickly, and make an end. He shuddered. The wind was chilly and yet heavy with an odor of cold decay. Well, he said, at last withdrawing his eyes, we cannot stay here all night. Fix or no fix, we must find a more sheltered spot and camp once more, and perhaps another day will show us a path. Or another, and another, and another, muttered Sam. Or maybe no day. We've come the wrong way. I wonder, said Frodo, it's my doom, I think, to go to that shadow yonder so that a way will be found. But will good or evil show it to me? What hope we had was in speed. Delay plays into the enemy's hands, and here I am, delayed. Is it the will of the Dark Tower that steers us? All of my choices have proved ill. I should have left the company long before and come down from the north east of the river, and of the Emmonwheel, and so over the heart of Battle Plain to the passes of Mordor. But now it isn't possible for you and me to alone find a way back, and the orcs are prowling on the east bank. Every day that passes is a precious day lost. I am tired, Sam. I don't know what is to be done. What, what food have we got left? Only those... What you call them? Uh, Lembus, Mr. Frodo? A fair supply, but they're better not by a long bite. I never thought, though, when I first set tooth in them, that I should come to wish for a change. But I do now. A bit of plain bread, 
and a mug. I half a mug of beer would go down proper. I lugged my cooking gear all the way from the last cabin. What use has it been? Not to make a fire with, for start, and not to cook, not even grass. They turned away and went down into a stony hollow. The westering sun was caught into clouds, and night came quickly. They slept as well as they could for the cold, turn and turn about in a nook among great jagged pinnacles of withered rock. At least they were sheltered from the easterly wind. Did you see them again, Mr. Frodo? asked Sam as they sat, stiff and chilled, munching wafers of Lembus in the cold, gray early morning. No, said Frodo. I've heard nothing and seen nothing for two nights now. Nor me, said Sam. But those eyes, they do give me a turn. But perhaps we've shaken them off at last, miserable slinker. Gollum. I'll give him Gollum in his throat if I ever get my hands on his neck. I hope you'll never need to, said Frodo. I don't know how he followed us, but it may be that he's lost us again, as you say. In this dry, bleak land, we can't leave many footprints, nor much scent, even for his snuffling nose. Oh, yo, that's the way of it, said Sam. No, oh, you wish we could be rid of him for good. So do I, said Frodo. But he's not my chief trouble. I wish we could get away from these hills. I hate them. I feel all naked on the east side. Stuck up here and nothing but dead flats between me and that shadow yonder. There's an eye in it. Come on, we've got to get down today, somehow. But that day wore on, and when afternoon faded toward evening, they were still scrambling along the ridge and had found no way of escape. Sometimes in the silence of that barren country, they fancied that they heard faint sounds behind them. A stone falling, or the imagined step of flapping feet on the rock. But if they halted and stood still listening, they heard no more, nothing but the wind, Sighing over the edges of the stones. Yet even that reminded them of breath softly hissing through sharp teeth. All that day the outer ridge of the Emmanuel had been bending gradually northward as they struggled on. Along its brink there now stretched a wide, tumbled flat of scored and weathered rock, cut every now and again by trench-like gullies that sloped steeply down to deep notches in the cliff face. To find a path in these clefts, which were becoming deeper and more frequent, Frodo and Sam were driven to their left, well away from the edge, and they did not notice that for several miles they had been going slowly but steadily downhill. The cliff top was sinking toward the level of the lowlands. At last they were brought to a halt. The ridge took a sharper bend northward and was gashed by a deep ravine. On the further side it reared up again, many fathoms at a single leap. A great gray cliff loomed before them, cut sheer down as if by a knife stroke. They could go no further forward and must turn now either east or west. But west would lead them only into more labor and delay, back toward the heart of the hills. East would take them to the outer precipice. "'There's nothing for it but to scramble down this gully, Sam,' said Frodo. "'Let's see where it leads to.' "'Nasty drop, I'll bet,' said Sam." The cleft was longer and deeper than it seemed. Some way down they found a few gnarled and stunted trees, the first they had seen for days. 
twisting birch for the most part, and here and there a fir tree, many were dead and gaunt, bitten to the core by the eastern winds. Once, in milder days, there must have been a fair thicket in the ravine, but now, after some fifty yards, the trees came to an end, though old broken stumps straggled on almost to the cliff's brink. The bottom of the gully, which lay along the edge of a rock fault, was rough with broken stone and slanted deeply down. When they came to the end of it, Frodo stooped and leaned out. Look, he said, we must have come down a long way, or else the cliff is sunk. It's much lower here than it was before, and it looks easier, too. Sam knelt beside him and peered reluctantly over the edge. Then he glanced up at the great cliff rising up, away to their left. Easier, he grunted. I suppose it's always easier getting down than up. Those as can't fly can jump. It would be a big jump still, said Frodo. About, well, he stood for a moment measuring it with his eyes. About eighteen fathoms, I should guess. Not more. And that's enough, said Sam. Oh, I ain't looking down from a height. But looking's better than climbing. All the same, said Frodo. I think we could climb here. And I think we shall have to try. See, the rock is quite different from what it was a few miles back. It has slipped and cracked. The outer fall was indeed no longer sheer, but sloped outward a little. It looked like a great rampart or seawall whose foundations had shifted so that its courses were all twisted and disordered, leaving great fissures and long slanting edges that were in places almost as wide as stairs. And if we're going to try and get down, we'd better try it at once. It's getting dark early. I think there's a storm coming. The smoky blur of the mountains in the east were lost in a deeper blackness that was already reaching out westward with long arms. There was a distant mutter of thunder borne on the rising breeze. Frodo sniffed the air and looked up doubtfully at the sky. He strapped his belt outside his cloak and tightened it and settled his light pack on his back and then stepped toward the edge. I'm going to try it, he said. Very good, said Sam gloomily. But I'm going first. You, said Frodo, what's made you change your mind about climbing? I haven't changed my mind, but it's only sense. Put the one lowest as is most likely to slip. I don't want to come down atop you and knock you off. No sense in killing two with one fall. Before Frodo could stop him, he sat down, swung his legs over the brink, and twisted round, scrabbling his toes for a foothold. It is doubtful if he ever did anything braver in cold blood, or more otherwise. No, no, Sam, you old ass, said Frodo. You'll kill yourself for certain going over like that without even a look to see what you're making for. Come back. He took Sam under the armpits and hauled him up again. Now, wait a bit and be patient, he said. Then he lay on the ground, leaned out and looked down. The light seemed to be fading quickly, although the sun hadn't yet set. "'I think we could manage this,' he said presently. "'I could at any rate, and you could too, if you kept your head and followed me carefully.' "'I don't know how you can be so sure,' said Sam. "'Why, you can't see to the bottom in this light. What if it comes to a place where there's nowhere to put your feet or your hands?' "'Climb back, I suppose,' said Frodo. "'Easy said,' objected Sam. But are waiting till morning, more light. No, not if I can help it, said Frodo with a sudden strange vehemence. 
I grudge every hour, every minute. I'm going down to try it out. Don't follow till I come back or call you. Gripping the stony lip of the fall with his fingers, he let himself gently down, until when his arms were almost at full stretch, his toes found a ledge. One step down, he said, and this ledge broadens out to the right. I could stand there without a hold. I'll... His words were cut short. The hurrying darkness, now gathering great speed, rushed up from the east and swallowed the sky. There was a dry, splitting crack of thunder right overhead. <coughs> Searing lightning smoked down upon the hills. Then came a blast of savage wind, and with it, mingled with its roar, there came a high, shrill shriek. <sighs> Hobbits had heard just such a cry far away in the Marish as they fled from Hobbiton, and even there in the woods of the Shire it had frozen their blood. Out here in the waste its terror was far greater. It pierced them with cold blades of horror and despair, stopping heart and breath. Sam fell on his face. Involuntarily, Frodo loosened his hold and put his hands over his head and ears. He swayed, slipped, and slithered downward with a wailing cry. Ah! Sam heard him and crawled to the edge with an effort. Master! He called. Master! Master! He heard no answer. He found he was sh shaking all over, but he gathered his breath, and once more he shouted, Master! Master! The wind seemed to blow his voice back into his throat, but as it passed, roaring up the gully and away over the hills, a faint answering cry came to his ears. All right! All right! I'm here! But I can't see! Frodo was calling with a weak voice, he was not actually very far away. He had slid and not fallen, and had come up with a jolt to his feet on a wider ledge not many yards down. Fortunately, the rock face at this point leaned well back, and the wind had pressed him against the cliff so that he had not toppled over. He studied himself a little, lying on his face against the cold stone, feeling his heart pounding. But either the darkness had grown complete, or else his eyes had lost their sight. All was black about him. He wondered if he had been struck blind. He took a deep breath. <sighs> Come back! Come back! He heard Sam's voice out of the blackness above. I can't, he said. I can't see! I can't find any hold! I can't move yet! What can I do, Mr. Frodo? What can I do? shouted Sam, leaning out dangerously far. Why could his master not see? It was dim, certainly, but not as dark as all that. He could see Frodo below him, a grey, forlorn figure splayed against the cliff. But he was far out of reach of any helping hand. There was another crack of thunder. And then the rain came. A blinding sheet mingled with hail. It drove against the cliff, bitter cold. I'm coming down to you, shouted Sam, though how he hoped to help in that way he could not have said. No, no, wait, Frodo called back more strongly now. I shall be better soon. I feel better already. 
Why, you can't do anything without a rope. Rope, cried Sam, talking wildly to himself in excitement and relief. What if I don't deserve to be hung on the end of one as a warning to numbskulls? You're nut but a ninny hammer, Sam Gamgee. That's what a gaffer said to me often enough. Being a word of his. Rope. Stop chattering, cried Frodo, now feeling recovered enough to be both amused and annoyed. Never mind, old gaffer. Are you trying to tell yourself you've got some rope in your pocket? If so, out with it. Yes, Mr. Frodo, in my pack and all. Carried it hundreds of miles and I'd clean forgotten it. Then get busy and let an end down. Quickly, Sam unslung his pack and rummaged in it. There, indeed, at the bottom, was a coil of the silken grey rope made by the folk of Lorien. He cast an end to his master. The darkness seemed to lift from Frodo's eyes, or else his sight was returning. He could see the grey line as it came dangling down, and he thought it had a faint silver sheen. Now that he had some point in the darkness to fix his eyes on, he felt less giddy. Leaning his weight forward, he made the end fast around his waist and then grasped the line with both hands. Sam stepped back and braced his feet against a stump a yard or two from the edge. Half hauled, half scrambling, Frodo came up and threw himself onto the ground. Thunder growled and rumbled in the distance, and the rain was still falling heavily. The hobbits crawled away back into the gully, but they did not find much shelter there. Rills of water began to fall down. Soon they grew to a spate that splashed and fumed at the stones and spouted all over the cliff like gutters on a vast roof. "'I should have been half drowned down there, or washed clean off,' said Frodo. "'What a piece of luck you had that rope.' "'Better luck if I thought of it sooner,' said Sam. "'Maybe you remember them putting the ropes in the boats as we started off?' In the elvish country. I took a fancy to it and stowed a coil into my pack. Years ago, it seems. It may be a help in many needs, he said. Aldir, or one of his folk. And he spoke right. Pity I didn't think of bringing another length, said Frodo. But I left the company in such hurry and confusion. If only we had enough to use it to get down. How long is your rope, I wonder? Sam paid it out slowly, measuring it with his arms. Five, ten, twenty, thirty ells, more or less, he said. Who'd have thought, said Frodo. Yeah, who would, said Sam. Elves are wonderful folk. Looks a bit thin, but it's tough. And soft as milk to the end. Packs close, too, as light as light. Wonderful folk, to be sure. Thirty ells, said Frodo, considering. I believe it would be enough. If the storm passes before nightfall, I'm going to try it. The rain's nearly given over already, said Sam. But don't you go doing anything risky in the dim again, Mr. Frodo. And I haven't got over that shriek on the wind yet, if you have. Like a black rider it sounded. But but one up in the air, if they can fly. Are you thinking we best lay up in this crack till the night's over? And I'm thinking I won't spend another moment longer than I need to. Stuck up on this edge with the eyes of the dark country looking over the marshes, said Frodo. And with that, he stood up and went down to the bottom of the gully again. He looked out. Clear sky was growing in the east once more. The skirts of the storm were lifting, ragged and wet, and the main battle had passed and spread its great wings over the Emin Muil, upon which the dark thought of Sauron brooded for a while. 
Thence it turned, smiting the Vale of Anduin with hail and lightning, and casting its shadow upon Minas Tirith with threat of war. Then, lowering in the mountains and gathering its great spire as it rolled on slowly over Gondor and the skirts of Rohan, until far away the riders on the plain saw its black towers moving beneath the sun as they rode into the west. But here, over the desert and the reeking marshes of deep blue sky, evening came opening once more, and a few pallid stars appeared, like small white holes in the canopy above the crescent moon. "'It's good to be able to see again,' said Frodo, breathing deep. "'Do you know, I thought for a bit I'd lost my sight.' From the lightning or something else worse, I could see nothing, nothing at all, till the great grey rope came down. It seemed to shimmer somehow. It does look sort of like silver in the dark, said Sam. Never noticed that before. Though I can't remember as having had it out since I first stowed it. But if you're so set on claiming, Mr. Frodo, how are you going to use it? Thirty ells, or say about eighteen fathom, that's no more than your guess at the height of the cliff. Frodo thought for a while. Make it fast to a stump, Sam, he said. Then I think you shall have your wish this time and go first. I'll lower you, and you need do no more than use your feet and hands to fend yourself up from the rock. Though if you put your weight on some of the ledges and give me a rest, it will help. When you're down, I'll follow. I feel quite myself again now. Very well, said Sam heavily. If it must be... Let's, let's get it over. He took up the rope and made it fast over the stump nearest to the brink. Then the other end he tied about his own waist. Reluctantly, he turned and prepared to go over the edge a second time. It did not, however, turn out half as bad as he had expected. The rope seemed to give him confidence, though he shut his eyes more than once as he looked down between his feet. There was one awkward spot where there was no ledge and the wall was sheer and even undercut for a short space. There he slipped and swung out on the silver line. But Frodo lowered him slowly and steadily, and it was over at last. His chief fear had been that the rope length would give out while he was still high up, but there was a good bite in Frodo's hands when Sam came to the bottom and called up, I'm down! His voice came up clearly from below, but Frodo could not see him. His grey elven cloak had melted into the twilight. Frodo took rather more time to follow him. He had the rope about his waist, and it was fast above, and he had shortened it so that it would pull him up before he reached the ground. Still, he did not want to risk a fall, and he had not quite Sam's faith in this slender grey line. He found two places, all the same, where he had to trust wholly to it. Smooth surfaces where there was no hold even for his strong hobbit fingers, and the ledges were far apart. But at last, he too was down. "'Well,' he cried, "'we've done it. "'We've escaped from the Emin Muil. "'And now what next, I wonder? "'Maybe we shall be sighing for good hard rock underfoot again soon.' "'But Sam did not answer. "'He was staring back up the cliff. "'Ninniammers,' he said. "'Noodles. "'My beautiful rope. "'There it is, tied to a stump, and we're at the bottom.' Just as nice a little stare for that slinking golem as we could leave. Better to put up a signpost to say which way we've gone. I thought it seemed a bit too easy. If you think of any good way that we could both use the rope and yet have it brought down with us, then you can pass on to me, Ninnyham, or any other name your gaffer used to give you, said Frodo. 
Climb up and untie it and let yourself down if you want to. Sam scratched his head. No, I can't think how, begging your pardon, he said. But I don't like leaving it, that's a fact. He stroked the rope's end and shook it gently. It goes hard, parting with anything that was brought out of elf country. Made by Galadriel herself, maybe. Galadriel, he murmured, nodding his head mournfully. He looked up and gave one last pull to the rope, as if in farewell. To the complete surprise of both of the hobbits, it came loose. Sam fell over and long gray coils slithered silently down on top of him. Frodo laughed. Who tied the rope? he said. Good thing it held as long as it did. To think I trusted all my weight to your knot. Sam did not laugh. No, I may not be much good at climbing, Mr. Frodo, he said in injured tones. But I do know something about rope and about knots. It's in the family, as you might say. Why, my granddad, my uncle Andy after him, him was the gaffer's eldest brother. He had a rope walk over the toy field many a year. And I put as fast a hitch over the stump as any one I could have done, in the shire or out of it. And the rope must have broken. Frayed on the rock edge, I suspect, said Frodo. I bet it didn't, said Sam in an even more injured voice. He stooped and examined the ends. Nor it hasn't neither, not a strand. And I'm afraid it must have been the knot, said Frodo. Sam shook his head, but did not answer. He was passing the rope through his fingers thoughtfully. Well, you have it your own way, Mr. Frodo, he said at last. But I think the rope came off itself when I called to it. He coiled it up and stowed it lovingly in his pack. It certainly came, said Frodo, and that's the chief thing. But now we've got to think of our next move. Night will be on us soon. How beautiful the stars are, and the moon. They do cheer the heart, don't they? said Sam, looking up. Elvish they are, somehow. And the moon's growing. We haven't seen him for a night or two in this cloudy weather. He's beginning to give quite a light. Yes, but he won't be full for some days. I don't think we'll try the marshes by the light of half a moon. Under the first shadows of night, they started out on the next stage of their journey. After a while, Sam turned and looked back at the way that they had come. The mouth of the gully was a black notch in a dim cliff. I'm glad we got the rope, he said. We've set a little puzzle for that footpad, anyhow. He can try his nasty, flappy feet on those ledges. They picked their steps away from the skirts of the cliff, among the wilderness of boulders and rough stones, wet and slippery with the heavy rain. The ground still fell sharply away. They had not gone very far when they came upon a great fissure that yawned suddenly black before their feet. It was not wide, but it was too wide to jump across in the dim light. They thought they could hear water gurgling in its depths. It curved away to their left, northward, back toward the hills, and so barred their road in that direction, at any rate while darkness lasted. "'We better try away back southward, along the line of the cliff, I think.' said Sam. We might find some nook there, or even a cave or something. I suppose so, said Frodo. I'm tired, and I don't think I can scramble among the stones much longer tonight, although I grudge the delay. I, I wish there was a clear path in front of us, then I'd go on till my legs gave way. They did not find the going any easier at the broken feet of the Emin Muil. 
Nor did Sam find any nook or hollow to shelter in, only bare stony slopes frowned over by the cliff, which now rose again, higher and more sheer as they went back. In the end, worn out, they just cast themselves on the ground under a lee of a boulder lying not far from the foot of the precipice. There for some time they sat huddled mournfully together in the cold stony night, while sleep crept upon them in spite of all that they could do to hold it off. The moon now rode high and clear. Its thin white light lit up the faces of the rocks and drenched the cold, frowning walls of the cliff, turning all the wide, looming darkness into a chill, pale gray, scored with black shadows. Well, said Frodo, standing up and drawing his cloak more closely around him, you sleep for a while, Sam. Take my blanket. I'll walk up and down on sentry for a bit. Suddenly, he stiffened, and stooping, he gripped Sam by the arm. What's that? he whispered. Over there. Look, on the cliff. Sam looked and breathed in sharply through his teeth. That's what it is. It's that golem. Snakes and adders. And to think I thought that we'd puzzle him with our bit of a climb. Look at him, like a nasty crawling spider on a wall. Down the face of a precipice, sheer and almost smooth it seemed in the pale moonlight, a small black shape was moving with its thin limbs splayed out. Maybe its soft clinging hands and toes were finding crevices and holds that no hobbit could ever have seen or used, but it looked as if it were just creeping down on sticky pads, like some large prowling thing of insect kind. And it was coming down head first, as if it were smelling its way. Now and again it lifted its head slowly, turning it right back on its long, skinny neck, and the hobbits caught a glimpse of two small, pale, gleaming eyes. Eyes that blinked at the moon for a moment and then were quickly lidded again. You think that he can see us? said Sam. I don't know, said Frodo quietly, but I, I think not. It's hard even for friendly eyes to see these elven cloaks. I cannot see you in the shadow even at a few paces, and I've heard he doesn't like sun or moon. Then why is he coming down just here? asked Sam. Quietly, Sam, said Frodo. He can smell us, perhaps. And he can hear as keen as elves, I believe. I think he's heard something now. Our voices, probably. We did a lot of shouting away back there, and we were talking far too loudly until a minute ago. Well, I'm sick of him, said Sam. He's come once too often for me. I'm going to have a word with him, if I can. I don't suppose we could give him the slip now, anyway. Drawing his grey hood well over his face, Sam crept stealthily toward the cliff. Careful! whispered Sam, coming behind. Don't alarm him. He's much more dangerous than he looks. The black, crawling shape was now three-quarters of the way down, and perhaps fifty feet or less above the cliff's foot. Crouching stone still in the shadow of a large boulder, the hobbits watched him. He seemed to have come to a difficult passage or to be troubled about something. They could hear him snuffling. And now and again there was a harsh hiss of breath that sounded like a curse. He lifted his head, and they thought they heard him spit. Then he moved on again. Now they could hear his voice creaking and whistling. 
He lifted his head again, blinked at the moon, and quickly shut his eyes. We hate it, he hissed. Nasty, nasty, shivering lights it is. It spies on us. It hurts our eyes. He was getting lower now, and hisses became sharper and clearer. It's ours, it isn't, but you want it. The thieves, the thieves, the filthy little thieves. Where are they? With my precious. Curse them. We hate them. Doesn't sound as if he knew we were here, does it? Whispered Sam. What's his precious? What does he mean about that? Shh, breathed Frodo. He's getting near now near enough to hear a whisper. Indeed, Gollum had suddenly paused again, and his large head on his scrawny neck was lolling from side to side as if he was listening. His pale eyes were half unlidded. Sam restrained himself, though his fingers were twitching. His eyes, filled with anger and disgust, were fixed upon the wretched creature as he now began to move again, still whispering and hissing to himself. At last he was no more than a dozen feet from the ground, right above their heads. From that point there was a sheer drop, for the cliff was slightly undercut, and even Gollum could not find a hold of any kind. He seemed to be trying to twist round so as to go legs first, then suddenly with a shrill whistling shriek he fell. As he did so, he curled his legs and arms up round him like a spider whose descending thread is snapped. Sam was out of his hiding place in a flash and crossed the space between him and the cliff foot in a couple of steps. Before Gollum could get up, he was on top of him, but he found Gollum more than he had bargained for, even taken like that suddenly off his guard after a fall. Before Sam could get a hold, long legs and arms were wound round him, pinning his arms in clinging grip, soft but horribly strong. The grip was squeezing him like slowly tightening cords. Clammy fingers were feeling for his throat. Then sharp teeth bit into his shoulder. All he could do was to butt his head hard round sideways into the creature's face. Gollum hissed and spat but did not let go. Things would have gone ill with Sam if he had been alone. But Frodo sprang up and drew Sting from its sheath. With his left hand, he drew back Gollum's head by his thin, lank hair, stretching his long neck and forcing his pale, venomous eyes to stare up at the sky. Let go, Gollum, he said. This is Sting. You've seen it before, once upon a time. Let go, or you'll feel it this time. I'll cut your throat. Gollum collapsed and went as loose as a wet string. Sam got up, fingering his shoulder. His eyes smoldered with anger, but he could not avenge himself. His miserable enemy lay groveling on the stones, whimpering. Don't hurt us! Don't! Don't let them hurt us, precious! They they won't hurt us, will they? 
Miss Little Hobbitses, we didn't mean no harm, but they jumps on us like cats and poor mice as they did, precious. And we're so, we're so lonely. We'll be nice to them. Very nice if they will be nice to us, won't we? Yes, yes. Well, what's to be done with it? said Sam. Toy it up so it can't come sneaking after us no more, I'd say. But that won't kill us! Kill us! I whimpered Gollum. Cruel little hamilton's and tie us up in cold hard lands and leave us <coughs> Sobs welled up in his gobbling throat. No, said Frodo. If we kill him, we must kill him outright. But we can't do that, not as things are. Poor wretch. He's done us no harm. Oh, hasn't he? said Sam, rubbing his shoulder. Anyway, he meant to, and he means to, I'll warrant. Throttle us in our sleep, that's his plan. I dare say, said Frodo, but what he means to do is another matter. He paused for a while and thought... Gollum lay still, but stopped whimpering. Sam stood glowering over him. It seemed to Frodo that then he heard, quite plainly but far off, voices out of the past. What a pity Boober did not stab the vile creature when he had a chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy. Not to strike without need. I do not feel any pity for Gollum. He deserves death. Deserves death? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give that to them? They do not be too eager to deal out death in the name of justice, fearing for your own safety. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Very well, he answered aloud, lowering his sword. But still I'm afraid. And yet, as you see, I will not touch the creature. For now that I see him, I do pity him. Sam stared at his master, who seemed to be speaking to someone who was not there. Gollum lifted his head. Wretched are we precious? He whined. Misery! Oh, misery! Oh, hobbits won't kill us! Nice hobbits! No, we won't, said Frodo. But we won't let you go either. You're full of wickedness and mischief, Gollum. You will have to come with us after all. While we keep an eye on you. But you must help us if you can. One good turn deserves another. Yes, yes, indeed, said Gollum, sitting up. My shepherds, we will come with them, find them safe paths in the dark. Yes, we will. And where they are going in these cold, hard lands, we wonders. Yes, we wonders. He looked up at them, and the faint light of cunning and eagerness flickered for a second in his pale, blinking eyes. Sam scowled at him and sucked his teeth. 
but he seemed to sense that there was something odd about his master's mood, and the matter was beyond argument. All the same, he was amazed at Frodo's reply. Frodo looked straight into Gollum's eyes, which flinched and twisted away. "'You know, or you guess well enough, Smeagol,' he said, quietly and sternly. "'We're going to Mordor, of course. And you know the way there, I believe.' <laughs> said Gollum, covering his ears with his hands as if such frankness and the open speaking of the names hurt him. "'We guessed. <laughs> Gollum,' he whispered. "'And we, we didn't want him to go this way. "'No, precious, not, not the nice hobbits. "'Ashes, ashes, and dust, and thirst there's. "'Pits, pits, pits, and orcs, thousands of orcs. "'Nice hobbits mustn't go to those places.' "'So you've been there?' Frodo insisted. And you're being drawn back there, aren't you? Yes. Yes. <coughs> Cried Gollum. Once, by accident it was, wasn't it, precious? Yes, by accident. But, but we won't go back. No, no, no. Then suddenly his voice and language changed, and he sobbed in his throat and spoke not to them. Oh, leave me alone. Gollum. Your heart, my poor hands. I, we, I don't want to come back. I can't find it. I'm tired. I, we can't find it. No, no, they're always awake. Dwarves, men, elves, terrible elves with bright eyes. I can't find it! He got up and clenched his long hand into a bony, fleshless knot, shaking it up toward the east. We won't! He cried. Not for you! Then he collapsed again. He whimpered with his face to the ground. Don't look at us. Go away. Go to sleep. He will not go away or go to sleep at your command, Smeagol, said Frodo. But if you really wish to be free of him again, you must help me. And that, I fear, means finding us a path toward him. But you need not go all the way, not beyond the gates of his land. Gollum sat up again and looked at him under his eyelids. He's over there! <laughs> Always there! Orcs will take you all the way. Is it to find orcs east of the river? Don't ask Smeagol. Poor, poor Smeagol. He went away long ago. They took his precious and it lost now. Perhaps we'll find him again, if you come with us, said Frodo. No, never. He lost his precious, said Gollum. Get up, said Frodo. Gollum stood and backed away against the cliff. Now, 
said Frodo. Can you find us a path easier by night or day? We're tired, but if you choose the night, we'll start tonight. The big lights hurt our eyes, they do, Gollum whined. Not another white face. Not yet. It will go behind the hill soon, yes. Rest a bit first, nice hobbitses. Then sit down, said Frodo, and don't move. The hobbits seated themselves beside him, one on either side, with their backs to the stony wall, resting their legs. There was no need for any arrangement by word. They knew they must not sleep for a moment. Slowly the moon went by. Shadows fell down from the hills, and all grew dark before them. The stars grew thick and bright in the sky above. No one stirred. Gollum sat with his legs drawn up, knees under chin, flat hands and feet splayed on the ground, his eyes closed. But he seemed tense, as if thinking or listening. Frodo looked across at Sam. Their eyes met, and they understood. They relaxed, leaning their heads back and shutting their eyes, or seeming to. Soon the sound of their soft breathing could be heard. Gollum's hands twitched a little. Hardly perceptibly, his head moved to the right and the left, and first one eye, and then the other opened a slit. The hobbits made no sign. Suddenly, with startling agility and speed, straight off the ground, with a jump like a grasshopper or a frog, Gollum bounded forward into the darkness. But that was just what Sam and Frodo had expected. Sam was on him before he had gone two paces after his spring. Frodo, coming behind, grabbed his leg and threw him. Your rope might prove useful again, Sam, he said. Sam got out the rope. And where were you off to in the cold, hard lands, Mr. Gollum? He growled. We wonders, I we wonders. Find some of your orc friends, I warrant. Nasty, treacherous creature. It's round your neck this rope ought to go, and a tight noose, too. Gollum lay quiet and tried no further tricks. He did not answer Sam, but gave him a swift, venomous look. All we need is something to keep hold on him, said Frodo. We want him to walk, so it's no good tying his legs. Or his arms, he seems to use them nearly as much. Tie one end to his ankle and keep a grip on the other end. He stood over Gollum while Sam tied the knot. The result surprised them both. Gollum began to scream, a thin, tearing sound, very horrible to hear. He writhed and tried to get his mouth to his ankle and bite the rope. He kept on screaming. At last, Frodo was convinced he really was in pain, but it could not be from the knot. He examined it and found it was not too tight, indeed, hardly tight enough. Sam was gentler than his words. "'What's the matter with you?' he said. "'If you will try to run away, you must be tied, but we don't wish to hurt you.' It hurts us! It hurts us! hissed Gollum. It freezes! It bites! Elves twisted it! 
curse them, nasty, cruel elves. That's why we tried to escape. Of course it is, precious. We guessed they were cruel hobbits. They, they visit elves. Yes, elves with bright eyes. Take it off us. It hurts us. No, I will not take it off you, said Frodo. Not unless... He paused a moment in thought. Not unless there is any promise that you can make that I can trust. We will swear to do what you want. Yes. Yes. <laughs> said Gollum, still twisting and grabbing at his ankle. It hurts us. Swear, said Frodo. Spiegel, said Gollum suddenly and clearly, opening his eyes wide and staring at Frodo with a strange light. Smeagol will swear on the precious. Frodo drew himself up, and again Sam was startled by his words and his stern voice. On the precious? How dare you, he said. Think! One ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. Would you commit your promise to that, Smeagol? It will hold you, but it is more treacherous than you are. It may twist your words. Beware. Gollum cowered. On the precious. On the precious. He repeated. And what would you swear? Asked Frodo. To be very, very good. Said Gollum. Then crawling to Frodo's feet, he groveled before him, whispering hoarsely, a shudder ran over him, as if his words took his very bones with fear. Smeagol would never, never let him have it, Smeagol, I swear. Never. Smeagol will save it, but he must, he must swear on the precious. No, not on it, said Frodo, looking down with pity and sternness. All you wish is to see and to touch it if you can, though you know it would drive you mad. Not on it. Swear by it, if you will, for you know where it is. Yes, you know, Smeagol. It is before you. For a moment it appeared to Sam that his master had grown and Gollum had shrunk. A tall, stern shadow, a mighty lord who hid his brightness in grey cloud and at his feet a little whining dog. Yet the two were in some way akin, and not alien. They could reach each other's minds. Gollum raised himself and began pawing at Frodo, fawning at his knees. Down! Down! said Frodo. Now speak your promise! We promises! Yes, I promise! said Gollum. I will serve the master of the precious. Good master, good smeagol. Suddenly he began to weep and bite at his ankle again. Take the rope off, Sam, said Frodo. Reluctantly, Sam obeyed. At once, Gollum got up and began prancing about like a whipped cur whose master has patted it. From that moment, a change, which lasted for some time, came over him. He spoke with less hissing and whining, and he spoke with his companions direct, not to his precious self. He would cringe and flinch if they stepped near him or made any sudden movement, and he avoided the touch of their elven cloaks. But he was friendly, and indeed 
pitifully anxious to please. He would cackle with laughter and caper if any jest was made, or even if Frodo spoke kindly to him, and weep if Frodo rebuked him. Sam said little to him of any sort. He suspected him more deeply than ever, and if possible, liked the new Gollum, the Smeagol, less than the old. Old Gollum, or whatever it is we're to call you, he said. Now for it. The moon's gone, and the night's going. We'd better start. Yes, yes, agreed Gollum, skipping about. Oh, for you, there's only one way across between the north end and the south end. I found it. I did. Orcs don't use it. Orcs don't know. Orcs don't cross the marshes. They go round for miles and miles. Very lucky you came this way. Very lucky you found Smeagol. Yes, a fellow Smeagol. He took a few steps away and looked back inquiringly like a dog, inviting them for a walk. Wait a bit, Gollum, cried Sam. Not too far ahead now. I'm going to be at your tail. I've got the rope handy. No, no, said Gollum. Smeagol, Smeagol promised. In the deep of night, under the hard, clear stars, they set off. Gollum led them back northward for a while, along the way that they had come. Then he slanted to the right, away from the steep edge of the Emin Muil, down the broken, stony slopes toward the vast fens below. They faded quickly and softly into the darkness. Over all the leagues of waste before the gates of Mordor, it was a black silence. folks one of the two chapters we're going to be reading tonight chapter one of part two of book two so y'all hang in there we've got another chapter yet to read tonight um so book two the two towers that is the book that we're currently in but um part one as we can see pretty distinctly followed um larger percentage of uh the fellowship right Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Merry, and Pippin, and then Gandalf, of course, catches up with them. So all this has been off in other parts of the world, right? At the Emin Muil, they split. And at the Emin Muil, I think we are to understand the Emin Muil as essentially a mountain range. Um, that is how I've been sort of absorbing it. This is where we're at. Now we're here with Frodo and Sam, seeing what they've got up to. And it appears that one of the very first things they've got up to, this is probably as um, uh, as Merry and Pippin are being carried off by orcs. This is probably as Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli are chasing after those orcs. All of this is probably happening roughly the same time. If I've got my if I've got my numbers correct, there's there's a lot of running going on, a lot of moving. I'm moving and shaking. That's where we're at. Terribly exciting. And uh, I want to say an extra special thank you to our good friend, Ex Neolo. 
Ex Nilo Arts. Um, Ex Nilo has done our editing recently. Um, uh, the, the editing, which has been such an absolute bane to me, um, uh, Ex Nilo has been doing quite a bit of editing. And as a matter of fact, I believe the last four episodes of uh, four, five even, the last five episodes of The Lord of the Rings, the reason why uh, if you go to um, uh, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and look for... Um, uh, uh, flying sidecar. The reason why you'll find that suddenly there are five new episodes, and we are all caught up with the uploads there. That is thanks to Ex Nilo Arts. So Ex Nilo, thank you very, very much. I really, really appreciate that. Um, deeper than appreciation, like I'm, I'm thankful for your offer to do so, and you have done a great job of it as well. So thank you a ton. I appreciate you an awful lot. That is super important. Um, and uh, it was just something that, you know, with how things have been going for me in life, not something that I could put together myself, um, uh, not consistently at least. I was I was working on it, but I was far behind. Um, so thank you a ton. I appreciate you so very much. Um, <laughs> Proteus Spade does indeed let us give, give us a bit of context about the Emin Muil. Pretty Spade says, I believe it has been described as an impossible labyrinth of razor-sharp rocks. Yes, indeed. I do believe that is how it has been described in the past. Um, and uh, Nani Love says, this voice gets me, bro. Well, I am glad to hear it. Uh, Gwen Dog, I'm glad you enjoyed it as well. Um, yeah, this one, this, this voice, uh, so far, so far, I think I can maintain it. Fortunately, I don't have to do it for 12, 14, 16 hour days of shooting like Andy Serkis does. And I get a break to use my normal voice in between. And I also, I, I don't know, I don't know how long during shooting it took them to sort of come up with Gollum juice, but Gollum juice is something that um, Andy Serkis says he would just drink it until he was sick and then keep drinking it because in spite of the fact that it made him sick to his stomach, his throat still needed it. Uh, but it is uh, some combination of like oh, I think it's tea and uh, and honey and lemon. A lot of honey and lemon. Um, it might just be water and honey and lemon. But yes, yeah, Gollum juice. Uh, this is stuff that that uh, Andy Circus would drink on set while playing Gollum to maintain his voice and let him keep doing that for long shooting days. Um, but boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, and I'm not even you know I'm I I think if I were. I've considered this in the past, right? If I if I did a read-through, I was actually thinking about it while I was reading. If I did my read-throughs differently and did it a little bit more, um, I guess, in the professional style, which is to say, read all the narration and read all, all of the Gollum lines and read all of the Frodo lines and read all of the Sam lines and do those bunched together so that I maintain a very, very similar voice, I think things would be a little different. I might dive a little bit deeper over the edge with this Gollum voice, but as it is, I think my my version of it is definitely uh, toned back from his somewhat. Pretty said, Pretty Spade says pineapple juice, and I always find that acids they would they would allow me to um uh, they 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 might allow me to like do what I need to do, but at the same time they make me very phlegmy. and so I've tried to I have tried to avoid those in general. Maybe pineapple's a little bit different. I also don't love 
pineapple just in general anyway, so that's made it a little bit easier. Anyway, folks, um, like I said, my name is Sam. This is Zach Car Stories. We are going to take a quick break. I'm going to be gone for about five minutes, then we're going to come back. I'm going to read the next chapter, chapter two, The Passage of the Marshes. Very exciting that we get to follow uh, Sam and Frodo and Gollum now on their way across these dark lands. Very exciting indeed. But, uh, folks, thanks so much for joining me here. I'm going to leave you with a little chatterbreak question, right? Frodo and Sam. Clearly they've got two differing opinions on how to behave toward Gollum slash Smeagol. We heard a little bit in, in a in a surprising sort of flashback manner. Um, you know, it, it does make me almost wonder if this was supposed to be semi-literal that Frodo heard these voices of the old conversation that he had with um, uh, uh, with Gandalf on the night of Bilbo's initial disappearance. What a shame Bilbo didn't stab the vile creature. Right. And uh, Gandalf essentially says, like, a, a shame, perhaps. It's a pity. Yeah, it's a. it was pity that, that kept him from killing uh, Gollum in the first place when he first met him. Um, and some that die deserve life and some that live deserve death. But that's not really for you to decide. It's not really for most folks to decide um, because even the wise cannot see all ends. So we see that in like a flashback. It says, um, it seemed to Frodo that then he heard quite plainly but far off voices out of the past. Right? So this, this is like almost a literal flashback happening in media res, which is a little odd. Uh, so I do kind of wonder about that. But we get a little bit of that. We get a little bit of Sam's thought processes, a little bit of Frodo's as the two of them discuss back and forth what's to be done about Gollum. I want to know how y'all feel about their two motivations. Sam and Frodo, and the way that they feel about what's to be done about Gollum. I want to hear some pros and cons lists. I want to hear what y'all think of those two plans. And why they're motivated to do this to Gollum. Why they're motivated to be this way right now. I'll see y'all in five minutes. I know that's not quite the same thing, but I was inspired. There's a, a sequence of notes in the uh, the theme song that I use for this particular show uh, that reminds me very, very much of the... Let's see, I think it's the... Um, lobby music for Super Smash Bros? At least one of them, I don't know. Orly Rose says, yeah, papaya, I lived on it while I was pregnant. Orly Rose, the enzymes are gonna eat the baby! That's not true. That's not true. Pretty Spade says, am dwarf feasting. Now, I don't know what it means to be dwarf feasting, um, Pretty Spade, but I will say, I do know, like, I, I absolutely, one of my favorite ways to eat is, um... I call it like, <laughs> like adventuring. I don't even like. I don't have a name for it. But when I when I think about it, my thought is absolutely. 
Uh, I'm eating like I would if I were an adventurer out in some swords and sorcery adventure. Um, uh, just like... Oh, okay. Yeah, dwarf feasting. Okay, this is like, this is very, very similar ideas. Okay, Pretty Spade says eating rustic bread and highly peppered steak and cola. Um, yeah, I just like j to eat sort of like non, non-composed food, right? Not necessarily a salad, although... No, I don't think a salad counts as like adventuring supplies. Uh, adventuring, what's the dang word? Rations. Um, but uh, adventuring food, it's, I just want like a chunk of of uh, like roast pork or some chicken breast or what have you um, that I cut up with a knife and then some bread, maybe a little bit of butter, a little chunk of cheese, maybe some grapes or like an apple on the side. I love that. I love that. Um, just the sort of thing that you would expect, like, wrapped in two handkerchiefs and stuffed into a backpack. Uh, of course, mine is uh, some some uh, pork tenderloin that I <laughs> probably oven-roasted with some garlic and rosemary. And uh, uh, it, it was in the fridge instead of getting squashed in the bottom of a pack all day. But it is what I think about while I eat it. I'll just eat it cold because it's good that way and I feel adventurous. I need to get myself, like, a a, a waxed handkerchief so I can just eat directly off of that like a savage um JT I believe the quote is simply meat right off the bone <laughs> but my good folks welcome back hey y'all hey y'all my name is Sam this is sidecar stories we're about to read another chapter of the Lord of the Rings book two part two that's right Book two, The Two Towers, part two, in which we follow not Aragorn and the rest of the Fellowship, but Frodo and Sam. We've split off into these two different groups. Now, we were talking a little bit before about why Sam and Frodo feel these different ways about Gollum, and uh, I'm sure that'll come up more later on, but for now... For now, let us proceed on to a spot of review. Give me 60 seconds to talk about what's happened that you've uh, you've missed if you're coming in late. And we shall proceed on into our next chapter. So, here we are. Catching up with our good friend, Frodo, his little buddy the ring, and uh, his good buddy, Samwise Gamgee. They're being followed by... A, a dark shape as they try to cross the Emin Wheel, this uh, collection of razor sharp rocks. And they manage to do so with the help of this shape that's been following them. After all, it is Gollum, aka Smeagol. Um, this individual who possessed the ring for quite a long time, but it twisted him into this terrible shape. Um, but after trying to attack the two of them, Gollum does agree under threat of death under a threat of elven rope which he seems to sort of get a burning sensation from um and then under an oath placed by the ring swearing by the ring he's going to be good he's going to be helpful he's going to help them get to the gates of mordor because frodo has said to him he doesn't need to go with them beyond that because um, frodo knows he doesn't really want to return there it was a terrible i mean he was tortured there but that's the direction they need to go, and Frodo essentially says, look, I know you want to be free of him. Him being Sauron, of course. And I'm afraid the only way to do that, the only way to get us all free from him, is to go toward him. There we have it. There we have it, folks. Um, 
<laughs> or the rest says, it's easy to make waxed cloths with melted beeswax, like from candles. I use them all the time. Louise says, I could make you some waxed <laughs> napkins to wrap your food in, Sam. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. I do appreciate the offer. I've been wanting to, it's, it's one of the many things on my list is to, uh, you know, jump into my costumery stuff. Um, but it's on a long list, unfortunately. But, oh, uh, uh, somebody from work is going to be bringing in some stuff to help me uh, bring out some of the texture in that leather belt that Jem's uh, got me. So that'll be good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Are you folks ready? I think it's high time that we discovered, is this newfound ally, Gollum, really on their side? Or is he merely drawing them deeper into the dark lands to trap them and get his grubby, strong fingers on the ring? The Two Towers, Part Two, Chapter Two. The Passage of the Marshes. Gollum moved quickly with his head and neck thrust forward, often keeping his hands as well as his feet. Frodo and Sam were hard put to it to try and keep up with him, but he seemed no longer to have any thought of escaping, and if they fell behind, he would turn and wait for them. After a time, he brought them back from the brink of a narrow gully that they had struck before, but now they were further from the hills. Here it is, he cried. There's a way down inside this. Now we follow it. Out, out, away over there. He pointed south and east toward the marshes. The reek of them came to their nostrils, heavy and foul, even in the cool night air. Gollum cast up and down along the brink, and at length he called to them. Here, we can get down here. Smeagol went this way once. I went this way, hiding from orcs. He led the way, and following him, the hobbits climbed down into the gloom. It was not difficult, for the rift was at this point only some fifteen feet deep and about a dozen across. There was running water at the bottom. It was, in fact, the bed of one of the many small rivers that trickled down from the hills to feed the stagnant pools and mires beyond. Gollum turned to the right, southward more or less, and splashed along with his feet in the shallow, stony stream. He seemed greatly delighted to feel the water and chuckled to himself, sometimes even croaking in a sort of song. <laughs> cold, hard lands, they bite our hands, they gnaws our feet, the rocks and stones are like old bones or bare of meat. But stream and pool is wet and cool, so nice for feet, and now we wish. <laughs> what does we wish? He said, looking sidelong at the hobbits. We'll tell you, he croaked. He guessed it long ago. Baggins guessed it. The glint came into his eyes, and Sam, catching the gleam in the darkness, thought it far from pleasant. Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsting, ever drinking, clad in mail, never clinking, drowned on dry land, Thinks an island, there's a mountain, thinks a fountain, there's a puff of air. So sleek, 
so fair, what a joy to meet. We only wish to catch a fish so juicy, sweet. <laughs> These words were only made more pressing to Sam's mind a problem that had been troubling him from the moment that he understood that his master was going to adopt Gollum as a guide. The problem of food. It did not occur to him that his master might also have thought of it. But he supposed Gollum had. Indeed, how had Gollum kept himself in all of his lonely wandering? Not too well, thought Sam. He looks fair famished. Not too dainty to try what hobbit tastes like if there ain't no fish, I'll wager. Supposing as he could catch us napping. Well, he won't. Not Sam Gamgee, for one. They stumbled along in the dark, in the winding gully, for a long time. Or so it seemed to the tired feet of Frodo and Sam. The gully turned eastward, and as they went it broadened and got gradually shallower. The last of the sky grew faint with the first gray of morning. Gollum had shown no sign of tiring, but now he looked up and halted. Day is near, he whispered, as if day was something that might overhear him and spring upon him. It's me, you will stay here. I will stay here, and the yellow face won't see me. We should be glad to see the sun, said Frodo, but we will stay here. We're too tired to go any further at present. You are not wise to be glad of the yellow face, said Gollum. It shows you up nice, sensible. Hobbit, stay with me, all. Orcs and nasty things are about these can see you a long way. Stay and hide with me. The three of them settled down to rest at the foot of the rocky wall of the gully. It was not much more than a tall man's height now, and at the base there were wide, flat shelves of dry stone. The water ran in a channel to the other side. Frodo and Sam sat on one of the flats, resting their backs. Gollum paddled and scrabbled up the stream. We must take a little food, said Frodo. Are you hungry, Smeagol? We have very little to share, but we will spare what we can. At the word hungry, a greenish light was kindled in Gollum's pale eyes, and they seemed to protrude farther than ever from his sickly, thin face. For a moment he relapsed into his old Gollum manner. We are famished, yes, famished, he said. What is it they eat? How they nice fishes. His tongue lolled out between his sharp yellow teeth, licking his colorless lips. No, we've got no fish, said Frodo. We've only got this. He held up a wafer of lembas. And water, if the water here is fit to drink. Yes, yes, nice water. Said Gollum. Drink it, drink while we can. But what is it they've got, precious? Is it crunchable? Is it tasty? Frodo broke off a portion of a wafer and handed it to him on a leaf wrapping. Gollum sniffed at the leaf and his face changed. A spasm of disgust came over it and a hint of his old malice. Smeagol smells it, he said. Leaves out of the elf country. It stinks. He climbed in those trees and he couldn't wash the smell of his hands. My nice hands. 
Dropping the leaf, he took the corner of the lembas and nibbled it. He spat it out, and a fit of coughing shook him. He spluttered. You tried to chunk, poor Smeagol, dust and ashes. He can't eat that. He must starve, but Smeagol don't mind. Nice habits, Smeagol has promised. He will starve, but he can't eat habits food. He will starve, poor Thin Smeagol. I'm sorry, said Frodo, but I can't help you, I'm afraid. I think this food would do you good if you would try. Perhaps you can't even try. Not yet, anyway. The hobbits munched their lembas in silence. Sam thought it tasted far better somehow than it had for a good while. Gollum's behavior had made him attend to its flavor again. But he did not feel comfortable. Gollum watched every morsel from hand to mouth like an expectant dog by a diner's chair. Only when they had finished and were prepared to rest was he apparently convinced they had hidden no dainties for themselves that he could share in. Then he went and sat by himself a few paces away and whimpered a little. Look here, Sam whispered to Frodo, but not too softly. He did not really care whether Gollum heard him or not. We gotta get some sleep, but not both together while that hungry villain's nigh. Promise or no promise. Smeagol or Gollum, he won't change his habits in a hurry, I'll warrant. You, you go on to sleep, Mr. Frodo, and I'll call you when I can't keep my eyelids propped up. Turn about, same as before, while he's loose. Perhaps you're right, Sam, said Frodo, speaking openly. There is a change in him, but just what kind of change and how deep, I'm not sure yet. Seriously, though, I don't think there is any need to fear... At present. Still, watch if you wish. Give me about two hours, not more, and then call me. So tired was Frodo that his head fell forward on his breast and he slept, almost as soon as he had spoken the words. Gollum seemed no longer to have any fears. He curled up and went quickly to sleep, quite unconcerned. Presently, his breath was hissing softly through his clenched teeth, but he lay still as a stone. After a while, fearing that he would drop off himself if he stayed listening to his two companions breathing, Sam got up and gently prodded Gollum. His hands curled and twitched, but made no other movement. Sam bent down and said, Fish! Close to his ear, but there was no response, not even a catch in Gollum's breath. Sam scratched his head. Must really be asleep, he muttered. And if I was like Gollum, I wouldn't wake up never again. He restrained the thoughts of his sword and rope that sprang to mind and went to sit down by his master. When he woke up, the sky above was dim. Not lighter, but darker than when they had breakfasted, Sam leapt to his feet. Not least from his own feeling of vigor and hunger, he suddenly understood that he had slept the daylight away, nine hours at least. Frodo was still fast asleep lying now stretched on his side. Gollum was not to be seen. 
Various reproachful names for himself came to Sam's mind, drawn from the gaffer's large paternal word hoard. Then it occurred to him that his master had been right. There had been, for present, nothing to guard against. They were, at any rate, both alive and unthrottled. "'Poor wretch,' he said, half remorsefully. "'Now I wonder what he's got off to.' "'Not far! Not far!' said a voice above him. He looked up and saw the shape of Gollum's large head and ears against the evening sky. "'Here! What are you doing?' cried Sam, his suspicions coming back as he saw the shape. "'Smeagol is hungry!' said Gollum. "'Be back soon!' "'Hey, you come back here!' shouted Sam. "'Come back!' But Gollum had vanished. Frodo woke at the sound of Sam's shout and sat up, rubbing his eyes. "'Hello,' he said. "'Anything wrong? What's the time?' "'I don't know,' said Sam. "'After sundown, I reckon. And he's gone off. Says that he's hungry.' "'Don't worry,' said Frodo. "'There's no help for it. But he'll come back, you see. The promise will hold a while yet.' And he won't leave his precious anyway. Frodo made light of it when he heard that they had actually slept soundly for hours with Gollum, and a very hungry Gollum, too, loose beside them. Don't think of any of your gaffer's hard names, he said. You were worn out, and it has turned out well. We are now both rested, and we have got a long, hard road ahead. The worst road of all. About the food, said Sam. How long is it going to take us to do this job? And when it's done, what are we going to do then? It's way bread keeps you on your legs in a wonderful way, though it doesn't satisfy the innards proper, as you might say. Not to my feeling, anyhow. Meaning no disrespect to them has made it. But you have to eat some of it every day. And it doesn't grow. I reckon we got enough to last, say, three weeks or so. And that much with a light belt and a light tooth, mind you. We've been a bit free with it so far. "'I don't know how long we shall take to... to finish,' said Frodo. "'We were miserably delayed in the hills. "'But Samwise Gamgee, my dear hobbit, indeed, Sam, my dearest hobbit, friend of friends, "'I do not think we need to give thought to what comes after that. "'To do the job, as you put it, what hope is there that we ever shall? "'And if we do, who knows what will come of that?' If the one goes into the fire, and we are at hand, I ask you, Sam, are we ever likely to need bread again? I think not. If we can nurse our limbs to bring us to Mount Doom, that is all we can do. More than I can, I begin to feel. Sam nodded silently. He took his master's hand and bent over it. He did not kiss it, though his tears fell upon it. Then he turned away, drew his sleeve over his nose, and got up and stamped about, trying to whistle and saying between his efforts, Roy, where, where is that dragged creature? It was actually not long before Gollum returned, but he came so quietly that they did not hear him until he stood before them. His fingers and face were soiled with black mud. He was still chewing and slavering. What he was chewing they did not ask or like to think. "'Worms or beetles or something slimy out of holes,' thought Sam. "'Nasty creature. Poor wretch.' Gollum said nothing to them, 
until he had drunk deeply and washed himself in the stream. Then he came up to them, licking his lips. Better now, he said. Are we rested? Ready to go on? Nice habits, they sleep beautifully. Trust Smeagol now. Very, very good. The next stage of their journey was much the same as the last. As they went on, the gully became shallower and the slope of its floor more gradual. Its bottom was less stony and more earthy, and slowly its sides dwindled to mere banks. It began to wind and wander. That night drew to its end, but the clouds were now over moon and star, and they knew of the coming of day only by the slow spreading of the thin gray light. In a chill hour they came to the end of the watercourse. The banks became moss-grown mounds. Over the last shelf of rotting stone the stream gurgled and fell into a brown bog and was lost. Dry reeds hissed and rattled, though they could feel no wind. On either side, and in front of wide fens and mires, now lay, stretching away southward and eastward into the dim half-light. Mists curled and smoked away from dark and noisome pools. The reek of them hung stifling in the still air. Far away, almost due south, the mountain walls of Mordor loomed, like a black bar of rugged clouds floating away above a dangerous fog-bound sea. The hobbits were now wholly in the hands of Gollum. They did not now know, and they did not guess in the misty light, that they were in fact only just within the northern borders of the marshes, the main expanse of which lay south of them. They could, if they had known the lands, with some delay have retraced their steps a little, and then turning east could have come round over hard roads of the bare plain of Dagorlad, the field of the ancient battle before the gates of Mordor. Not that there was great hope in such a course. On that stony plain there was no cover, and across it ran the highways of the orcs and soldiers of the enemy. Not even the cloaks of Lorien would have concealed them there. "'How do we shape our course now, Smeagol?' said Frodo. "'Must we cross these evil-smelling fens?' "'No, no need, no need at all,' said Gollum. "'Not if hobbits want to reach the dark mountains and go see him very quick.' Back a little, round a little, his skinny arm waved north and east. And if you come on hard roads to the very gates of his country, lots of his people will be there looking out for guests, very pleased to take them straight to him. Oh, yes, his eye watches that way all the time. It caught Smeagol there long ago. Gollum shuddered. But Smeagol has used his eyes since then. Yes, yes. I've used his eyes and feet and nose since then. I know other ways. More difficult. Not so quick, but better. If we don't want him to see, follow Smeagol. He can take you through the marshes, through the mists. Nice thick mists. Follow Smeagol. Very carefully, and you may go a long, long way before he catches you. Yes, perhaps. It was already day, a windless and sullen morning, and the marsh reeks lay in heavy banks. No sun pierced the low-clouded sky, and Gollum seemed anxious to continue the journey at once. 
So, after a brief rest, they set out again, and were soon lost in the shadowy, silent world, cut off from all view of the lands about. Either the hills they had left, or the mountains that they sought, they went slowly in single file, Gollum, Sam, and Frodo. Frodo seemed to be the most weary of the three, and slow though they went, he often lagged. The hobbits soon found that what looked like one vast fen was actually an endless network of pools and soft mires and winding, half-strangled watercourses. Among these, a cunning eye and foot could thread a winding path. Gollum certainly had that cunning and needed all of it. His head on his long neck was ever turning this way and that while he sniffed and muttered all the time to himself. Sometimes he would hold up his hand and halt them while he went forward a little, crouching, testing the ground with his fingers or toes, or merely listening with one ear pressed to the earth. It was dreary and wearisome. Cold, clammy winter held sway in this forsaken country. The only green was the scum of livid weed on the dark, greasy surfaces of the sullen waters. Dead grasses and rotting reeds loomed up in the mists like ragged shadows of long-forgotten summers. As the day wore on, the light increased a little, and the mists lifted, growing thinner and more transparent. Far above the rot and vapors of the world, the sun was riding high and golden now in a serene country with floors of dazzling foam. But only a passing ghost of her could they see below, bleared, pale, giving no color and no warmth. But even at this faint reminder of her presence, Gollum scowled and flinched. He halted their journey and they rested, squatting like little hunted animals in the borders of a great brown reed thicket. There was a deep, Silence, only scraped on its surfaces by the faint quiver of empty seed plumes and broken grass blades trembling in small air movements they could not see. Not a bird, said Sam mournfully. No, no birds, said Gollum. Nice birds, he licked his teeth. No birds here. There are snakes, worms, things in pools. Lots of things. Lots of nasty things. No birds, he ended sadly. Sam looked at him with distaste. So passed the third day of their journey with Gollum. Before the shadows of evening were long and happier lands, they went on again, always on and on, with only brief halts. These they made not so much for rest as to help Gollum, for even now he had to go forward with great care, and he was sometimes at a loss for a while. They had come to the very midst of the dead marshes, and it was dark. They walked slowly. Stooping, keeping close in line, following attentively to every move that Gollum made, the fens grew more wet, opening into wide, stagnant mares, along which it grew more and more difficult to find firmer places where feet could tread without sinking into gurgling mud. The travelers were light, or maybe none of them would ever have found a way through. Presently it grew dark altogether. The air itself seemed to become black and heavy to breathe. When lights appeared, Sam rubbed his eyes. He thought his head was going queer. He first saw one with the corner of his left eye, a wisp of pale sheen that faded away, but others appeared soon after. 
some like dimly shining smoke, some like misty flames flickering slowly above unseen candles. Here and there they twisted like ghostly sheets, unfurled by hidden hands. But neither of his companions spoke a word. At last Sam could bear it no longer. "'What's all this, Gollum? he said in a whisper. "'These lights! They're all round us now. Are we trapped? Who are they?' Gollum looked up. A dark water was before him, and he was crawling on the ground, this way and that, doubtful of the way. "'Yes, they are all around us,' he whispered. "'The tricksy lights!' Candles of corpses, yes, yes. Don't you heed them, don't look, don't follow them. Where is the master? Sam looked back and found that Frodo had lagged again. He could not see him. He went back some paces into the darkness, not daring to move far or to call in more than a hoarse whisper. Suddenly he stumbled against Frodo, who was standing lost in thought, looking at the pale lights. His hands hung stiff at his sides. Water and slime were dripping from them. "'Come on, Mr. Frodo,' said Sam. "'Don't look at him. Gollum says we mustn't. Let's keep up with him and get out of this cursed place as quick as we can. If we can.' "'All right,' said Frodo, as if returning out of a dream. "'All right, um, I'm coming. Go on.' Hurrying forward again, Sam tripped, catching his foot in some old root or tussock. He fell and came heavily onto his hands, which sunk deep into sticky ooze, so that his face was brought close to the surface of the dark mirror. There was a faint hiss. A noisome smell went up, and lights flickered and danced and swirled. For a moment, the water below him looked like some window, glazed with grimy glass through which he was peering. Wrenching his hands out of the bog, he sprang back with a cry. "'There are dead things! Dead dead faces in the water!' he said with horror. "'Dead faces!' Gollum laughed. (laughs) "'The dead marshes! Yes! Yes, that is their names!' he cackled. "'You should not look when the candles are lit!' "'Who are they? What are they?' said Sam, shuddering, turning to Frodo, who was now behind him. "'I don't know,' said Frodo, in a dreamlike voice. "'But I've seen them, too. "'In the pools where the candles were lit. "'They lie in all the pools. "'Pale faces, deep, deep under the dark water. "'I saw them. "'Grim faces and evil, and noble faces and sad.' Many faces, proud and fair, and weeds were in their silver hair, but all foul, all rotting, all dead. A fell light is in them. Frodo hid his eyes in his hands. I know not who they are, but I thought I saw their men and elves and orcs beside them. Yes. Yes, said Gollum. All dead, all... Rotten, elves and men and orcs, the dead marshes. There was a great battle long ago. Yes, so they told him when Smigel was young, when I was young before the precious came. It was a great battle. 
tall men with long swords and terrible elves and oxes shrieking. They fought on the plain for days and months at the black gates. But the marshes have grown since then, swallowed up the graves, always creeping, creeping. Well, that's an age and more ago, said Sam. The dead can't really be here. Is it some devilry hatched in the dark land? Who knows? Smeagol does not know, answered Gollum. You cannot reach them, you cannot touch them. We tried once. Yes, precious. I tried once, but you cannot reach them. Only shapes to see, perhaps, not to touch. No, precious, all dead. Sam looked darkly at him and shuddered again, thinking that he guessed why Smeagol had tried to touch them. Well, I don't want to see him, he said. Never again. Can we get on and get away? Yes, yes, said Gollum. But slowly, very slowly, very carefully, the hobbits will go down to join the dead ones and light little candles. Follow Smeagol. Don't look at the lights. He crawled away to the right, seeking for a path round the mirror. They came close behind, stooping, often using their hands as they did. Three precious little golems in a row we shall be if this goes on too much longer, thought Sam. At last they came to the end of the black mirror, and they crossed it perilously, crawling or hopping from one treacherous island tussock to another. Often they floundered, stepping or falling hands first into waters as noisome as a cesspool, till they were slimed and fouled almost up to their necks and stank in one another's nostrils. It was late in the night when at length they reached firmer ground again. Gollum hissed and whispered to himself, but it appeared he was pleased. In some mysterious way, by some blended sense of feel and smell and uncanny memory for shapes in the dark, he seemed to know just where he was again and to be sure of his road ahead. Now we go, he said. Nice hobbitses! Brave hobbitses! Very, very weary, of course! So we are, my precious, all of us. But we must take Master away from wicked lights. Yes, yes we must. With these words he started off again, almost at a trot, down what appeared to be a long lane between high reeds and they stumbled after him as quickly as they could. But in a little while he stopped suddenly and sniffed the air doubtfully, hissing as if he was troubled or displeased again. "'What is it?' growled Sam, misinterpreting the signs. "'What's the need to sniff? A stink nearly knocks me down with my nose out. You stink, Master Stinks, the old place stinks!' "'Yes, yes, and Sam stinks,' answered Gollum. "'Poor Smeagol!' Smells it, but good Smeagol bears it, helps nice master, but that's no matter, the, the air is moving, change is coming, Smeagol wonders, he's not happy. He went on again, but his uneasiness grew, and every now and again he stood up to his full height, craning his neck eastward and southward. For some time the hobbits could not hear or feel what was troubling him. Then suddenly all three halted, stiffening and listening. To Frodo and Sam it seemed they had heard far, far away a long, wailing cry, high and thin and cruel. 
They shivered. At the same moment, the stirring of the air became perceptible to them, and it grew very cold. As they stood straining their ears, they heard a noise like a wind coming in the distance. The misty lights wavered, dimmed, and went out. Gollum would not move. He stood shaking and gibbering to himself until with a rush the wind came upon them, hissing and snarling over the marshes. The night became less dark, light enough for them to see, or half-see, shapeless drifts of fog, curling and twisting as it rolled over them and passed them. Looking up now, they saw the clouds breaking and shredding, and then high in the south, the moon glimmered out, riding in the flying rack. For a moment, the sight of it gladdened the hearts of the hobbits, but Gollum cowered down, muttering curses on the white face. Then Frodo and Sam, staring into the sky, breathed sharply the fresher air and saw it come. A small cloud flying from the accursed hills, a black shadow loosed from Mordor, a vast shape, winged and ominous. It scudded across the moon with a deadly cry. For a moment the sight of it gladdened the hearts of the hobbits. They fell forward, groveling heedlessly on the cold earth. But the shadow of horror wheeled and returned, passing lower now, right above them, sweeping the fen reek with its ghastly wings. And then it was gone, flying back to Mordor with the speed of the wrath of Sauron, and behind it the wind roared away, leaving the dead marshes bare and bleak. The naked waste, as far as the eye could pierce, even the distant menace of the mountains was dappled with the fitful moonlight. Frodo and Sam got up, rubbing their eyes, like children wakened from an evil dream to find the familiar night still over the world. But Gollum lay on the ground as if he had been stunned. They roused him with some difficulty, and for a time he would not lift his face, but knelt forward on his elbows, covering the back of his head with large, flat hands. He wailed. Rights and wings, the precious, is their master. They see everything, everything. Nothing hides from them. Curse the white face. And they tell him everything. He sees, he knows. It was not until the moon had sunk, westering far beyond Tolbrandir, that he would get up or make a move. From that time on, Sam thought he had sensed a change in Gollum again. He was more fawning and would be friendly, but Sam surprised some strange looks in his eyes at times, especially toward Frodo, and he went back more and more into his old manner of speaking. And Sam had another growing anxiety. Frodo seemed to be weary, weary to the point of exhaustion. He said nothing. Indeed, he hardly spoke at all, and he did not complain. But he walked like one who carries a load, the weight of which is ever increasing, and he dragged along slower and slower, so that Sam often had to beg Gollum to wait and not leave their master behind. In fact, with every step toward the gates of Mordor, Frodo felt the ring on its chain about his neck grow more burdensome. 
He was now beginning to feel it as an actual weight dragging him earthward. But far more he was troubled by the eye, so he called it to himself. It was that, more than the drag of the ring, that made him cower and stoop as he walked. The eye, that horrible growing sense of a hostile will that strove with great power to pierce all the shadows of cloud and earth and flesh and to see you to pin you under its deadly gaze, naked, immovable. So thin, so frail and thin, the veils were become that still warded it off. Frodo knew just where the present habitation and heart of that will now was, as certainly as a man can tell the direction of the sun with his eyes shut. He was facing it, and its potency beat upon his brow. Gollum probably felt something of the same sort, but what went on in his wretched heart between the pressure of the eye and the lust of the ring was so near, and his groveling promise made half in the stress and fear of cold iron, the hobbits did not guess. Frodo gave no thought to it. Sam's mind was occupied mostly with his master hardly noticing the dark cloud that had fallen upon his own heart. He put Frodo in front of him now, and kept a watchful eye on every moment of his, supporting him if he stumbled and trying to encourage him with clumsy words. When day came at last, hobbits were surprised to see how much closer the ominous mountains had already drawn. The air was now clearer and colder, though still far off. The walls of Mordor were no longer a cloudy menace on the edge of sight. But as grim black towers, they frowned across a dismal waste. The marshes were at an end dying away into dead peats and wide flats of dry cracked mud. The land ahead rose in long, shallow slopes, barren and pitiless, toward the desert that lay at Sauron's gate. While the gray lights lasted, they cowered under a black stone like worms, shrinking lest the winged terror should pass and spy them with its cruel eyes. The remainder of that journey was a shadow of growing fear in which memory could find nothing to rest upon. For two more nights, they struggled on through the weary, pathless land. The air, as it seemed to them, grew harsh and filled with a bitter reek that caught their breaths and parched their mouths. At last, on the fifth morning since they took the road with Gollum, they halted once more. Before them, dark in the dawn, the great mountains reached up to roofs of smoke and cloud. Out from their feet were flung huge buttresses and broken hills that were now, at the nearest, scarce a dozen miles away. Frodo looked round in horror. Dreadful as the dead marshes had been and the arid moors of the no-man lands, more loathsome far was this country that crawling day now slowly revealed to their shrinking eyes. Even to the mare of dead faces, some haggard phantom of green light would come, but here neither spring nor summer would ever come again. Here nothing lived, not even the leprous growths that fed on rottenness. The gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and gray, as if the mountain had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the land about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth, fire-blasted and poison-stained, stood like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. They came to the desolation that lay before Mordor. 
the lasting monument to the dark labor of its slaves that would endure when all of their purposes had been made void. A land defiled, diseased beyond healing, unless the great sea should enter in and wash it with oblivion. I feel sick, said Sam. Frodo did not speak. For a while they stood there, like men in the edge of a sleep where nightmare lurks, holding it off, though they know that they can only come to mourning through the shadows. The light broadened and hardened. The gasping pits and poisonous mounds grew hideously clear. The sun was up, walking among clouds and long flags of smoke, but even the sunlight was defiled. The hobbits had no welcome for that light. Unfriendly, it seemed, revealing them in their helplessness, little squeaking ghosts that wandered around the ash heaps of the Dark Lord. Too weary to go further, they sought for some place where they could rest. For a while they sat without speaking under the shadows of a mound of slag, but foul fumes leaked out of it, catching their throats and choking them. Gollum was the first to get up. Spluttering and cursing he rose, and without a word or a glance at the hobbits he crawled away on all fours. Frodo and Sam crawled after him until they came to a wide, almost circular pit, high banked upon the west. It was cold and dead, and a foul sump of oily, many-colored ooze lay at its bottom. In this evil hole they cowered, hoping in its shadow to escape the attention of the eye. The day passed slowly. A great thirst troubled them, but they drank only a few drops from their bottles, last filled in the gully, which, now as they looked back, seemed a place of peace and beauty. The hobbits took it in turn to watch. At first, tired as they were, neither of them could sleep at all, but as the sun far away was climbing down into slow-moving cloud, Sam dozed. It was Frodo's turn to be on guard. He lay back on the slope of the pit, but that did not ease the sense of burden that was on him. He looked up at the smoke-streaked sky and saw strange phantoms dark riding shapes and faces out of the past. He lost track of time, hovering between sleep and waking until forgetfulness came over him. Suddenly Sam woke up, thinking that he had heard his master calling. It was evening. Frodo could not have called, for he had fallen asleep and had slid down nearby to the bottom of the pit. Gollum was by him. For a moment, Sam thought he was trying to rouse Frodo, but then he saw it was not so. Gollum was talking to himself. Smeagol was holding a debate with some other thought that used the same voice but made it squeak and hiss. The pale light and a green light alternated in his eyes as he spoke. Smeagol promised, said the first thought. Yes, yes, my... came the answer. We promised to save our precious, not to let him have it. Never. But it's going to him. Yes. Nearer every step. What's the hobbit going to do with it? We wonders. Yes, we wonders. I don't 
No, I don't help it. Master's got it. Smeagol promised to help the master. Yes, yes, to help the master. The master of the precious. But if we was master, then we could help ourselves. Yes. And still keep promises. But Smeagol said... He would be very good. Nice habit. He took cool rope off of Smeagol's leg. He speaks nicely to me. Very good. Very, very good. Eh, precious. Let's be good. Good as fish, sweet one. But to ourselves. Not hurt the nice habit, of course. No. No. But the precious holds the promise, the voice of Smeagol objected. Then take it, said the other, and let's hold it ourselves. Then we shall be master. Boom. Make the other hobbit, the nasty, suspicious hobbit, make him crawl. Yes. But not the night orbit. No, no, not if it doesn't please us. Still, he's a Baggins, my precious, yes, a Baggins. A Baggins stole it. He found it and he said nothing, nothing. We hate Baggins. No, not this Baggins's. Yes, every Baggins's. All people that keep the precious. I must have it. But, but he'll see. He'll know he'll take it from us. He sees. He, he knows. He heard us make silly promises. Yes. Against his orders, yes, must take it. The wraiths are searching, must take it. Not for him! No, sweet one. See, my precious, if we have it, then we can escape even from him. Perhaps we grow very strong, stronger than wraiths, Lord Smeagol. Gollum the Great, the Gollum, eat fish every day, three times a day, fresh from the sea, most precious Gollum must have it, we want it, we want it, we want it, but there's two of them, they'll wake too quickly and kill us, whined Smeagol in a last effort, not now, not yet, we want it, but... And here there was a long pause, as if a new thought had wakened. <sighs> not yet. Huh? Perhaps not. S she might help. She might No, no, not that way! 
wailed Smeagol. Yes, we want it. We want it. Every time the second thought spoke, Gollum's long hand crept out slowly, pawing toward Frodo, and then was drawn back with a jerk as Smeagol spoke again. Finally, both arms, with long fingers flexed and twitching, clawed toward his neck. Sam had lain still, fascinated by this debate, but watching every move that Gollum made from under his half-closed eyelids. To his simple mind, ordinary hunger, the desire to eat hobbits, had seemed the chief danger in Gollum. He realized now that this was not so. Gollum was feeling the terrible call of the ring. The Dark Lord was he, of course, but Sam wondered who she was. One of the nasty friends the little wretch had made in his wanderings, he supposed. Then he forgot the point, for things had plainly gone far enough and were getting dangerous. A great heaviness was in all his limbs, but he roused himself with an effort and sat up. Something warned him to be careful and not to reveal what he had overheard in the debate. He let out a loud sigh and gave a huge yawn. "'What's the time?' he said sleepily. Gollum sent out a long hiss through his teeth. He sat for a moment, tense and menacing. And then he collapsed, falling forward onto all fours and crawling up the bank of the pit. "'Nice hobbits! Nice Sam,' he said." Sleepyheads, yes, sleepyheads. We've good smeagol to watch, but it's evening. Dusk is creeping. Time to go. High time, thought Sam. And time that we parted, too. Yet it crossed his mind to wonder if indeed Gollum was now not just as dangerous turned loose as kept with them. Curse him. "'Curse him, I wish he was choked,' he muttered. "'He stumbled down the bank and roused his master. "'Strangely enough, Frodo felt refreshed. "'He had been dreaming. "'The dark shadow had passed, "'and a fair vision had visited him in this land of disease. "'Nothing remained of it in his memory, "'yet because of it he felt glad and lighter of heart.' His burden was less heavy on him. Gollum welcomed him with dog-like delight. He chuckled and chattered and cracked his long fingers, pawing at Frodo's knees. Frodo smiled at him. "'Come,' he said. "'You have guided us well and faithfully. This is the last stage. <sighs> Bring us to the gate, and then I will not ask you to come further. Bring us to the gate, and you may go where you wish, only not to our enemies.' The gate! <sighs> Gollum squeaked, seeming both surprised and frightened. To the gate, Master says. Yes, he says so. And good Smeagol does what he's asked. I, yes. Um, but when we get closer, perhaps you will see then. It won't look nice at all. No, 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 no. Go on with you, said Sam. Let's get it over. In the failing dusk, they climbed out of the pit and slowly threaded their way through the dead land. They had not gone far before they felt once more the fear that had fallen upon them when the winged shape 
swept over the marshes. They halted, cowering on the evil-smelling ground, but they saw nothing in the gloomy evening sky above. And soon the menace passed, high overhead, going maybe in some swift errand from Baradur. After a while, Gollum got up and crept forward again, muttering and shaking. About an hour before midnight, the fear fell upon them a third time, but it now seemed more remote, as if it were passing far above the clouds, rushing with terrible speed into the west. Gollum, however, was helpless with terror, and was convinced they were being hunted, that their approach was known. Three times! He whimpered. Three times is a threat! They feel us here! They feel the precious! The precious is the master! We cannot go any further this way! No! It's no use! No use! Pleading and kind words were no longer of any avail. It was not until Frodo commanded him angrily and laid a hand upon his sword hilt that Gollum would get up again. And at last he rose with a snarl and went before them like a beaten dog. So they stumbled on through the weary end of night, and till the coming of another day of fear they walked in silence with bowed heads, seeing nothing and hearing nothing but the wind hissing in their ears. folks. Thank you so much for listening. That is our last chapter of the evening. I do hope that all is well. It has been great to see you all. Thank you so much, Raiders, for coming in and for being great. Um, everybody, that is end for me tonight. I am exhausted. It has been a particularly long week for me. Um, I am about to uh, I'll, I'll put my hand up for a spoiler, but um, uh, go ahead. I guess it's not really a spoiler. It's a trigger warning. Um, assume about 10 seconds of pet grief here, pet loss. So trigger warning, just so that you are aware. Here we go. Um, we had to say goodbye to Blue um, basically last Friday. Um, I'm really, really thankful I didn't have a stream coming up or I, I don't know if I would have canceled it or, you know, tried to go through it. I really wasn't sure what to do with myself for a lot of the past couple of days. Um, but, uh, luckily I had the weekend and so, uh, I'm, I'm really thankful for everything and, um, it was... It was a slight, a very slight help to know that the space that feels empty right now is one that is not just an empty room that was always there that is only filled at times, but rather it was a room built by him and by us, and that it is only empty now because it exists, and it only existed because of everything that was built there. So it has been a particularly long week for me. Um, 
it was really tough and frankly it still is um i've never had to do that before we had a we had a dog when i was a kid that had to go live on a farm and i know how that sounds but we actually went and visited her um her name was cassie uh, and she was a great girl, but she was not good with kids at all. Um, and so as my parents had more kids, they sent Cassie to go live on a farm. And that is, again, I know how it sounds. We did go and visit her. Um, she had a very distinctive mark on the side of her nose. So I know it was her. Um, but uh, uh, there was that. And then um, uh, after that, you know, we had a, a dog when I was younger. Uh, a little bit younger, um, but I had left the house before, um, uh, before he got terribly old, and so this is the first time that I've had to really be there. Um, it was for for decision making purposes. It was absolutely time. We got some tests done, and there was no question. It was time. There was nothing really that could be done, and uh, you know. He, he was 18, but had he been dramatically dramatically younger, still nothing that could have been done. And we got it while he was still, you know, reasonably comfortable. So uh, the only, th there were no better circumstances that could have happened other than being able to see the future and pick a day arbitrarily. So circumstances are as, as good as they possibly could have been. But it was an especially tough week. And tonight may be the first night that it doesn't catch up with me. Because it has caught up with me at least once, sometimes twice, um, every night this week. But it's gotten a little easier. So there is that. Um, it wasn't necessarily a feature of the show, but uh, he was a feature of my life and our lives. And, you know, Cass and Cass gets along with all cats and cats really love her. Basically, all pets do. Um, uh, but of the two cats, like Clover really spent a lot of time with Cassidy and Blue would kind of split his time between us. But but when it came down to it and if, if Clover was kind of like guarding Cass, which she would sometimes do. She's Clover's a jerk sometimes. Um uh but Blue and I became really, really good buds. And so so it was tough. Was tough, is tough. Um probably will continue to be tough, I imagine. But I'm really thankful, um that uh, since I met him, you know, he was a really, really f scared boy. Um, and I'm really thankful that since then, since we moved to this new apartment, um, you know, it, uh, he was living with a family that was doing their best. There's, there's, I, I, I can't question that, and I don't. Um, uh, but it wasn't a great place for a cat like that to live, especially because the other cat, Clover, felt kind of, uh, you know, felt like the, the the space was too tight, and so she would, you know, get into spats with him, and so he would hide a lot. He was just a scared guy, and I'm really thankful that since moving to this apartment, the two of them have really relaxed around each other, and even more so, 
Blue has been able to relax. He spent his last few years really comfortable, really comfortable in a way that, you know, when I first met him, I would have said like, you know, assuming that's what that cat is always like, which we discovered, yes, it is, which I discovered, yes, it is. Um, I would have assumed like that cat is just never going to be able to have a moment's peace. And I, I can't think of a worse way to live, but over time, um, and it didn't take terribly long, uh, Blue became very, very comfortable here. He could sleep out in the open without worrying. Uh, he would move around as he wished, and he always felt like he had a safe place if he needed to. If some loud noise happened and he felt like he needed to run away, there was always a safe place under the bed for him. Um, but he didn't, you know, under the bed was his spot before, and that's where he would hide. That's where he lived, was just under the bed. We would, I would almost never see him. And, you know, I've just been thinking a lot recently about the first time he came up onto the bed while we were on it and it was the sort of thing where like Cass and I were, were both just we st sat there st still and silent and we like I, I remember there was one day I can't remember if it was the first time or one of the near subsequent times where I like I heard Cass come into the room and I like held up my hand for her to stop and both of us just sort of like sat and marveled that he was comfortable enough with the space and with us to come and do this and then um, you know uh, a year or two down the line and he's had he's had he had great years of this, of just, he was super comfortable on the bed. It became his favorite place. He would sit and uh, lay on the bed in the sunlight and was just comfortable. And so I'm really thankful for that. And I'm thankful he was my buddy. He was my buddy, so it's hard. But he did a great job. He did a great job. He's such a good boy. All right, folks. Thanks so much for being here with me tonight. Um, I do hope that your weeks go well. I hope the new schedule is working out all right for everybody. Um, uh, new schedule, of course, being Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, we have got our adventures inside cannons. Uh, the tabletop RPG wing of sidecar stories. At 1 p.m. on Thursday, Pacific time, we have got, of course, Vintage Sidecar, currently rolling through Sherlock Holmes. And on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific time, of course, this right here. So if you want to delve further into part two of book two, now that we're done with chapter two of part two of book two. Um, join us again next week. I'll see you all again soon.